Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience, special in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? Hi, all. Welcome to WWDMD. Dr. Myers here. Today, I'm with Amanda Sanchez. She is a very special guest because I think she broke the record for the number of classes that she took with me. It's actually six. I don't know how she sustained that, but good for you. But she graduated from Malloy University, our Bachelor of Social Work program, uh, a couple of years ago. And she's been working at a care management agency, but she also has a history of working in the field of child welfare. And today, she is willing to share her vulnerability with us by talking about her upbringing. And we are going to look for any intersections with how that with how her past may have impacted or will impact her work in the field, specifically working with children and their families. So hi, Amanda. It's so awesome to see you. I know. It's great to be here. Thank you. (laughs) I think when thinking about my life, the first thing that comes to mind is just the generational influence um, within our family. So especially among the women, within the men, there's that's a whole different ballgame. But For the women in my family, going back generations, starting with my great-grandmother, there's been such a history of anxiety, which back in that time, back in that time was um, more so known as like nervous, nervous disorder. She was just nervous all the time or she would freak out and all of a sudden get violent, not realizing that that's a trauma response, right? So then that trickles down to my grandmother who also struggles from like very severe anxiety and depression, um, agoraphobia. She doesn't really leave the home, which has also led to um, ways that she's tried to cope, which aren't necessarily healthy. Then leading to my mother, who also struggled with anxiety and depression. And then leading to us and me and my two siblings who have all struggled with some form of anxiety, um, depression. I had gone through a period of borderline like agoraphobia of not leaving the home, feeling very paranoid, feeling like I was going to be attacked if I went outside. And all of this just shows how how down the line and in having children and raising children, if you don't have the tools yourself to handle your emotions and what you've been through and to address and process the trauma that you've gone through, how it can affect the people that you interact with and especially children who are in your home. And I don't think it's, it's necessarily something that you can blame them for because how can you expect someone to care for somebody else in the proper and healthy way if they haven't done that for themselves? So that's kind of what has stood out. And I think an accumulation of what I've learned through schooling, what I've learned through my faith, what I've learned through my processing of trauma and just being in the field and working with other children and and seeing kind of how their lives and how their parents and how their families and how their environment has affected them, that that has allowed me to be able to look within myself and do some internal processing and, and addressing the pain that I've gone through to to better understand who I am and in turn grow as a person so that I can break that generational, um, I guess, inheritance of trauma and, and anxiety and depression for my children. That's quite a poignant background. And what's even more amazing is how you're able to articulate it and sound very 
assured in your understanding of what has happened to you and the kind of technicality or the intellectual understanding of it. And so I'm left thinking about the emotional resonance. You know, you're telling me that through your faith and through your education and through a host of experiences that you've really been able to come to an understanding. And it sounds like a place of forgiveness, right, of those that came before you. Mm-hmm. And and the insight as well has led you to be a better parent than the parenting that you received. But I'm also wondering if we can just go to that emotional place mm-hmm. of what it has been like and how, you, how you've really processed all that you've been through and the historical, as you said, intergenerational transmission of mental illness. I think that's what we're talking mm-hmm. about um, and how it's kind of come to play its role in your life. Yeah, so I I also just want to note that it's like an ongoing process. So I don't think that I've reached this point where now everything's perfect and it's great. I think every day I learn more um, based on what I'm experiencing, based on the emotions that come up. And it's the reflection process that's really helped me. So in that emotional process that you're talking about, I really think reflection is the biggest thing that has carried me through processing these life experiences and the trauma that I've endured. Mostly because, for example, most of my family has known me as being strong. Strong sounds like a positive term, but it was used negatively for me because it was like I wasn't in touch with how my, um, I guess, projection of what I'm feeling would affect people around me. So when I felt like I was being honest and truthful, I was actually being hurtful. And it wasn't until really being at at a bottom point where I felt like nothing's working. I don't have anything. I feel such an intense fear, such an intense worry that's not going away. And there is no possible way that this this is who I'm meant to be. There is no way that this is who I was created to be is to feel this way. That's torment. I don't think any of us are meant to go through that. But what brought me here? What is causing this anger that's inside of me? Is it sadness? Is it insecurity? Is it abandonment? Is it, it's a host of things and it's going through each of those moments and and really I don't want to say critiquing yourself because I feel like critique can sometimes sound negative, but really looking within yourself to say, okay, this situation I'm in right now or this conversation or this conflict um, is causing me to to act in a way that I don't like. What is it? What's the feeling underneath? What is the the root of that, of how I'm expressing it in such a negative way? And going through that has allowed me to kind of work out some of those kinks and, and learn more about my past and go through that process of forgiveness, like you were saying, to be able to forgive my family for some of the things that I felt growing up. Okay, so there's a lot in there. And I'd want to start, if we can, with this idea of being strong and the dissonance that you were experienced between what your family saw as a strength and what you saw as a weakness. So you said you came to understand that being truthful was, was also being hurtful. And so how were you able to see that? I think through the relationships that I had, uh, my relationships were strained. I was divorced. I did not speak to my parents. I went months without speaking to my mother at a time. And I would just shut down um, after lashing out. And where I felt like I'm justified in this. I have a right to do this because you made me feel X, Y, and Z. It's, It's no, there's a way to be honest that's not hurtful. And it takes... It takes a level of patience and a level of taking a step back to really look at the situation before automatically reacting. And that's that's kind of where I got to that point. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you did a lot of self-reflective work. Mm -hmm. Were you in therapy? No. Wow. That's amazing. So you've come to this understanding through, as you said, your education and and what and, and other things, as we, we already pointed out. But what would you say is the defining factor? Or is there one defining factor? Or you're seeing it as a myriad of things that allowed you to develop this insight. I think it's definitely a myriad of things. The biggest standout point that really changed my perspective was my faith. And that's not something that I would have ever expected because my sister coming to her own beliefs, I kind of fought back against that. And I was I was definitely pushing the other way and trying to convince her otherwise. So when I came to my own faith, 
it was definitely surprising. But I think the education process specifically within Malloy and in, in a lot of the classes that I had with you were exposing a lot of parts of me that, why am I crying in this conversation? Why am I still thinking about this? Why do I feel exposed in this classroom when nobody even knows what I'm thinking? And all of that really, really brought things to the surface that then allowed me to go through this reflection process. So now that you have an understanding of this intergenerational cycle, right, of the anxiety, of the depression, and you even said that your grandmother has a, had or has agoraphobia, tell me a little bit about how you've suffered from anxiety and depression. And then you had also mentioned abandonment, so if you want to go there as well. From since I can even remember as a child, I was always very fearful of everything. I had such an intense worry and, and fear of what could happen, what somebody was thinking. I was very insecure in friendships in school and growing up that kind of snowballed because it was never addressed. And, and that snowballed into me struggling with this this again, intense worry all the time. And when I had children, it, it definitely increased to, to the effect of, I felt like I couldn't protect them. I felt like, like I wasn't a good mom and then I would just shut down. And I remember walking around to give you kind of like a picture of, of an example of what the anxiety I was suffering with was. I would take my two kids, they're, they're less than a year apart and I would put them in the wagon to walk them around the block of our apartment building. And I would get to the corner and all of a sudden it was like, somebody's watching me. I'm vulnerable with two children. Somebody's gonna attack me. I'm not safe. I need to go back inside. Then I would look at every car passing by. Oh, I saw that car once. I saw that car twice. They're watching me. I'm scared. I need to protect my kids. And I would just go inside. And when you're not addressing that and when you're, when you're, giving into that that anxious feeling or that anxious thought because it all starts with the thought then you're you're making it more difficult to do normal things so and it's I don't want to go to the cash register at the store I don't want to go to the mall by myself I don't want to go to the beach by myself I can't take my kids by myself anywhere I can't take them to the park by myself and then it causes a, a codependency within your relationships because now I'm relying on on another person to to protect me make me feel secure make me feel safe because I don't feel that inside and that's that's also contributing to toxicity when you have another person who hasn't dealt with their trauma, who hasn't processed their trauma. And they are also, they don't know, they don't have the tools to make you feel safe. They don't have the tools to make you, to understand what you're experiencing. So then it, it's just this toxic codependent relationship that always ends in disappointment because you're relying on somebody else to make you feel safe when that's internal work that needs to be done. So that just shows kind of a bit of the anxiety I was going through at the time. I used to experience panic panic attacks frequently, even with just watching an intense adventure movie. If you can believe it, I would be... I wouldn't be able to breathe. I would call my mom and and because she suffered from panic attacks and she was one of the only people in my family that can relate to what I was experiencing. And I would just be screaming and, and hysterically crying on the phone. And she'd be like, I don't know what's going on. And she would come and, and spend the nights with me and the kids or she would take us to the mall or she would take us somewhere. And at the same time, it's interesting because I held so much resentment and so much anger towards my mother for not being able to make me feel loved when I was a child based on her own struggle with mental health. I think what's really poignant about that story actually is that you are this young girl and I don't necessarily mean represented by age, right? But how you're feeling inside, the level of vulnerability, the level of anxiety. And of course, every child in that position wants somebody, usually their mother, to soothe them. And how now your understanding is that she was limited in her own way, right? Due to the struggles that she was having with her own mental health, that she could not provide that for you. And mm -hmm. so you've had to learn either to find those who can offer you that or to find it with in yourself. And to have done that without therapy is mind-boggling to me. And it makes me wonder, do you still struggle with that? And how do you manage those feelings when they do come up? So I'm going to actually take you back a little bit further. So when I was 18, my goal was to get out of my house. I wanted to get out of my house because of the anger that I felt towards my family, the fragmented relationships that were within the home, the violence and the 
verbal and emotional abuse that I felt like I was enduring. And that led me to get married at 18. And it was a way out. Yes. Not realizing that the toxicity of a marriage that was never, that never should have taken place that early on caused this increased instability. Mm-hmm. And then it was kind of breaking out of that. So I actually experienced a level of domestic violence as well in my marriage. And at one point it, it had gotten physical in front of my kids. And mm-hmm. when he went to work, I called my dad, packed up the kids and I left. Mm-hmm. And that kind of started me going back to school for social work, something that I had passion for since high school that I had always said I wanted to do. But again, I was still dealing with all of these things that kept surfacing, kept surfacing. And now I can I can gladly say that I don't experience any anxiety that's out of range. So what I do when I speak to the kids that I work with is I let them know anxiety is, is, a, is an, a normal emotion that we all experience, right? But it's when it gets out of bounds. There's normal circumstances that when you feel anxious, like going for an interview or doing something that you've never done before, those are normal reasons to feel nervous or to feel a little bit worrisome. But when it gets out of bounds, when it, when it's stopping you from doing normal daily uh, tasks to assist in your functioning as a human being, that's when, that's when you need to address it because it's like, what's going on here? And if you never address it, it just keeps increasing and increasing and increasing until you can't handle it anymore. So for me, I got to the point where I felt like I couldn't handle it anymore. I felt like I was, I was affecting my children by an inability to parent them in the way that they deserve. Um, They were missing out on experiences because of me and my fear in doing things. And also, I felt like the way I was feeling, there was no future that I would want. Who wants a future of torment to be going through that every day? And coming to that realization and then coming into into my own faith and that perspective change of this is not who I who I'm meant to be this is not this these feelings and these emotions granted we are created with emotions right we are all born with emotions and they serve a purpose but when it's when it's crippling you when it stops you from being able to be the the woman or man or, or person or child that you're meant to be to to not only grow within your family, but also impact other people in a positive way, then then what's the point? So when I came to that point, I, I gladly can say that that through the process, I've been able to manage and diminish my anxiety so that it is within normal bounds. And do I experience sadness or worry? Of course. But do I experience depression and anxiety that that stops me from, from doing normal life things? No, I don't. Well, one, I'm so glad to hear that, right? That you've kind of overcome this to a large extent, to a way that you can function and manage it when it when it does rear its head. Mm-hmm. And the other piece is that it's a reality that many of the struggles that we have are lifelong struggles. It's a matter of getting the help or whatever form that looks like to be able to keep things in a, a comfortable, to keep things at a comfortable level so that you can function in the best way possible, not only for your own quality of life, what you're saying, but certainly if you have children to be the best parent that you can be for them. And it sounds like that that was a, I don't know if it was a, the motivating factor or it was like the light bulb that went off to show you how intrusive this anxiety was in your life. Mm -hmm. But I think another thing that you're kind of emphasizing, uh, whether you realize it or not, is is something I talk about in many of my episodes, uh, which is the impact of early relationships on our later and intimate relationships, right? So we tend to replicate those traumas and bring those into, as you said, how we move through life, your relationship with your children, but also our relationship in in, in all spheres, particularly romantic relationships. And mm-hmm. so your toxicity met his toxicity and eventually combusted. So I want to just go back. I think I said I was going to come back to this idea of abandonment. Mm-hmm. So... I'm wondering if that is something that you're referring to as, as as very concrete or kind of intrinsic that is something that you experience from having parents or this intergenerational pattern of those who are carrying their own struggles so immensely that they couldn't 
be there for you emotionally. So are you talking about abandonment figuratively or literally? Figuratively. Figuratively, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so you've come to understand it as an emotional abandonment that made you unable to soothe yourself in certain situations and function in the way that you probably could have if you had more quality parenting, which led to your anger. Is Mm -hmm. that correct? Your intense anger at your parents for the suffering that you were enduring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you had said that you were driven or became passionate about the field of social work. Can you identify what that was, that gave you the impetus to want to pursue that? So it's actually interesting because my own experience isn't what led me to that passion for social work. I, When you're in it, it's like as a child, right? A lot of kids that experience physical or sexual abuse, they don't know it's not normal until they, they know what normal is, right? Mm-hmm. Or what healthy is. Absolutely. So for me, I didn't even recognize what I was experiencing at the time, but I did have um, family members, out-of-state family members who experienced sexual abuse at the hand of their stepfather. And when my parents sat us down and discussed that with us and knowing we were in that home every every few months and spending so much time there, none of us knew. I just felt, I felt even, even as a young kid, I felt so, so such compassion and such, such hurt for them that, that I felt like who, there has to be a way for them to be protected. And there was, there was other things that snowballed through that later on because their mom didn't know how to handle that situation. And just being a witness to that made me say like, no, I want to be the voice for kids that, that will help advocate for them even when their parents don't. Okay. So now you're working in a care management agency and you're very committed to working with children and parents or children and families that have abusive environments. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. So so tell me about the nature of the work that you're doing and how you see your own background serving the role that you're in. So the work that I do, the caseload that I have, the children have all gone through frequent hospitalizations uh, based on their mental health, suicide attempts, suicidal ideation, self-harm, I've had homicidal ideation with some of my kids on my caseload and just a slew of things based on on their environment and how it's affected them and and even just just inherent inherently on their on their brain structure and and all of that stuff too. So my work with them is linking them to services that can assist in preventing frequent hospitalization. I've had kids that have been hospitalized 15 times in a year. Wow. So it's it's intense cases, and I go into their home, which is also a different perspective that I've gotten. I think I think when you're providing direct service, so these kids, I link them to therapists, psychiatrists, all of the stuff that they need in order to hopefully be successful, and that's where they're supposed to be getting their direct service, right? Their clinical care. Me being a care manager, I'm a little bit. It's like when you're standing this close to a picture, it looks blurry. But when you pull yourself back and you're looking at, the, at all of the moving pieces, you're able to see where where this child is lacking, what what is is negatively impacting this child, and what's positively impacting this child. And what I've been able to to see through going into their homes is the interaction with the family, the the environment, how it looks, how 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 the parents are are either available emotionally, physically, if they're not, or if they're in a foster care environment or if they're adopted. There's so many different factors and I've been able to kind of use my life experience in saying, I went through this and and I'm at this point and I feel like that is that is a hope that I hold on to for each one of my cases. And no matter anything that they've been through, no matter what they've done, no matter their behaviors, no matter their lashing out, no matter what they have done to themselves or other people, I look at them and I know that there is a hope that they will overcome this. And and that's kind of a, a main reason why I've been able to, to work with them so so well, but I'm also able to remove myself from it. When I used to work in my internship with a school for children with emotional disturbance, I would come home and I would shut down. And that was part of my capstone, understanding why I'm shutting down, what 
coping skills can I use to be able to prevent that and actually process through the pain? That was the title of my capstone, processing through the pain. And in learning that, that was kind of putting me in different situations while still being removed. So not having the burden of, oh, I'm the person giving them their counseling because I was just a student interning there. So I was, I had oversight. I was co-facilitating groups, things like that. So being exposed to these kids' scenarios and, and, and what they were experiencing at home or in their past and their traumas, it kind of allowed me through the, through my schooling to, to learn how to remove myself from that when I leave. And I've been able to do that work as well. So it's almost as though you're saying that the experience of being in the Bachelor's of Social Work program, which places a large emphasis on self-reflection and giving consideration as to where you, the social worker, is emotionally in your work, helped you to really reflect on your life's experiences, where you've been, where you are, what impact it has, almost as though we could be talking about therapy. Mm-hmm. Would you would you characterize it as such? Yeah, I would, I would say so because I, I did feel like we're learning topics based on people's life experiences, based on, I, I, my capstone was based on trauma-informed therapy. So when you're learning about this, it can't, you can't help but to have things surface up within yourself, within your own personal trauma. And then it's a matter of what do you do with that? Are you going to process it? Are you going to, are you going to really evaluate yourself and, and reflect on these things? Or are you going to ignore it and just focus on schoolwork? And I think that that was the defining factor also with me choosing choosing to focus and, and, and really look into that. Yeah, that's amazing. So you made a conscious decision that, I mean, I, mean, I don't know if it was a conscious decision to feel what you were feeling, right? You are obviously seeing the parallels to what you were learning and applying it to your own personal life. And then you made a conscious decision to really process that, to live in it, to live through it, and to work on it so that you could be a better social worker and give in a way that you knew that these kids you're going to be working with needed to be given to. Because I would think that initially you didn't have the internal resources to be able to do that, mm-hmm. right? But maybe after several, several social work courses that were kind of uh, imposing on you this need, which is interesting what you say, because yes, maybe not all students take it to that level, right? Maybe they're not able to. Maybe they have defenses that they're not, that prevent them because from being able to do that level of work because they're just not ready to, mm-hmm. right? But you kind of embraced it. You took it on and you went full on forward, which is kind of interesting because I was going to ask you when you mentioned referring kids to therapy, that's part of what you do, is not having been in therapy, how do you feel about promoting that as the way through or the way to help them? Do you think that if you were, if you could go back, if you were the child you, that you do see it as beneficial for you to have ha- had the experience of having been in therapy? I think that there's, I think that therapy does have, have benefits, of course. I think that it, especially for children who aren't able to, they don't have the capacity to, to reflect in, in, in the way that you need to, to be able to have that work, that internal work that's needed to, to progress past your trauma, to progress past your circumstance. And so I think a therapist specifically for children is important in getting them, getting them to understand because children are so fragile, they're so vulnerable and, and oftentimes they, they aren't valued for their voice because they're just children. People view them as just children, but children are essentially many adults in the emotions that they have. They experience every large emotion that an adult experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think that a professional that's able to explore that with them mm-hmm. and, and properly teach them the benefits of boundaries, the benefits of coping skills, the benefits of addressing and processing trauma, I think that is so so, so helpful in, in who they become as adults and how they're able to process as adults. Mm-hmm. So you talked a bit about how you think that your background and your upbringing can help in your 
work with children and and their families and your ability your ability to assess and see things right that maybe other people would take longer to pick up on because mm-hmm. of your own experience with I would call it neglect would that be safe to say and I think that a lot of the kids that you're working with are neglected in in tandem with being abused or separate from that can you talk a little bit about how you think that it may create some challenges in your work I think it it definitely has the potential to create challenges, especially when we're at a person-centered practice, right? So it's it's about what the families want, what what the families believe it will be beneficial to them. And sometimes that strength, and I put quotations around strength, comes from within me where it's like, I want to advocate for the child and what I think might be best might not be with what the family thinks that are best or what their professional thinks is best. So it's it's definitely understanding that boundary and maintaining that. And that's also a work in process, in progress. That's an ongoing process of, of maintaining boundaries, but also reestablishing them when you're getting possibly too close or when you feel when you feel a little bit too strong in that specific area. I think I also have noticed that if not fully aware of the situation, sometimes I will pull away from wanting to work with the parents and I'd rather work with the child, which again, anytime you're working with a child, you're working with the family. It's never just the child because they're a minor. So wanting to retreat from working with the parents, that's definitely something internally. Let's start with that piece, the idea that to work with a child, you have to work with the family because you're with the child maybe an hour, maybe two hours a week, and they go home to their family, and so the family is the ones that really also need to be treated. But sometimes they may feel so close to what you have experienced, and so the anger rises about what you've been through, and you can't separate yourself from that when you're seeing them, that it makes you want to distance yourself. Totally understandable, right? I think that the question then becomes, is there a way, and I think that this is what you were saying, to feed the parent so that they can feed the child? And interestingly, if we go back to something you said earlier, which was that you really kind of came to the recognition that your parents had limitations, that they had their own struggles that they were experiencing, and that allowed you to, I think, forgive them, Mm -hmm. right? So can you use that in your work with these parents who might be unsavory to you to find that redeeming quality in them, right? That maybe there's something Thing there that they have to offer their child, that you one that you can pick up on, but two, this piece that they're human too, they're fallible, and all they need is to be fed, perhaps from you or some outside source, in order for them to better feed their child. Absolutely. And in those instances with the families, I do, I go through this internal dialogue in my head of of what what can I what can I support them in? What can I pour into with like a positive affirmation. And I want to counteract that, that fleshly reaction of, uh, I'm, I don't like this person or, or this parent, I don't think is a good parent and doesn't, shouldn't have this child. That initial feeling, I need to counteract that. And how I do that is by looking at the parent and saying, what, what have they experienced that could have brought them to this point? And what is the quality about them that I can work with to develop that relationship, that professional relationship with them to be able to support them and advocate for their child and teach them how to advocate for their child and, and teach them how to better support their children through, through connection with services that will teach them that. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great perspective on it. It also makes me think about what you said about your own parenting, right? So you were parented with limitations, and then you became a limited parent Mm -hmm. until you developed the insight pretty quickly, I must say, and turned around and became a wonderful parent, just by the nature of even realizing what your children needed and what you needed to be to them, Mm -hmm. right? So you were able to do that. But think about these parents that haven't had that insight yet or haven't had that support yet, that might they too be the you. They're in between the children and their own parents who parented them faultily. So where where were they going to, you know, they, they grew up, it's, it's almost like it could be you having grown up without having the insight that you were able to have about yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that can be helpful in terms of being more empathic towards them, that they could have been a different version of you. 
Yeah, I think so. As you were speaking, what came to mind is they're still in it. They're still in it. They haven't they haven't come past that point yet. That past that that point of of still being living in the in those past experiences, still living in those harmful emotions that that have grown to just be so big that now it's just overtaken their entire lives and it's affecting their child. So I think I think absolutely it, it is helpful in being able to to relate in that way of of I've been there. I've I've not necessarily exactly where, but we all understand the basic concept of pain mm-hmm. and not and feeling hurt and mm-hmm. how that affects our behaviors. Mm-hmm. Speaking of human behavior, <laughs> <laughs> that's a class. That's one of the six she took. Yes, <laughs> I'm bringing it back to my own experience of not feeling safe. Safety, feeling safe, is is such a basic need and. If, if nobody's made to, if somebody's not made to feel safe or not made to provide at least some form of, of basic needs, how can we expect these families? How could we expect these people who grow into adults and make decisions that also affect other people to do things in a healthy way, to be able to, to reach the peak of, of who, they, who they can be, maybe not even the peak, but at least two levels above or one level above? How can we expect that if, if they're still at this basic need point? Absolutely. And I think partly what you're talking about is modeling, right? If you didn't have a model to show you, well, there's two parts, right? One is the internalization of feeling. If you haven't been soothed, how do you self-soothe, right? Very basic premise. We all need as infants to be attuned to. We all need to be understood. We need to be instinctively gotten, Mm -hmm. right? And when we don't get that, and hopefully we do get that because that's what happens through breastfeeding or even bottle feeding is the, the mom or the caregiver is looking at that infant and mimicking those looks of satisfaction or dissatisfaction. And it sounds a little crazy, but... Even at that young age, the infant is taking that in and feeling soothed by that, right? Or when a when a caregiver hums to a child who can't fall asleep, they're being soothed. When they're crying, they're being soothed. And if you get that experience, then eventually the idea is that you've internalized that and now you can self-soothe. But what if you were never exposed to soothing, either as an infant or as a child, right? As a child, it might look like being criticized for something that seems so innocuous and you're constantly having your ego tormented in some way or maybe through abuse later in life. How do you then learn to tell yourself you're okay, right? So it's the same idea, I think, that we're talking about in addition to this idea of modeling, right? We tend to learn from the way that we see our caregivers behave. So going back to this idea of intergenerational transmissions Mm -hmm. or patterns of behavior or mental health, if you only have as your model those who aren't able to function at a certain level or are chronically anxious or chronically depressed, how, how, what's your construct of happiness or satisfaction? So how do, we, how do we learn that? And so I think part of the role of a social worker or a therapist over time is in a way reparenting. Mm-hmm. And even to give you a, a real life example of that, when I was in, in the, the full-blown toxicity of my marriage, I already had two children before I left. And my daughter, when she would get upset, she would start screaming. Why? Because her mother was a mother that when overcome with emotion would have a panic attack. Mm -hmm. My son had difficulty with communication and processing speech. Mm -hmm. If you're in an environment where there's yelling and nobody's, everyone's so caught up in their own emotion that you're neglected or you're, you're an afterthought how are you going to learn communication? Mm -hmm. So it is, it is true that modeling is so important because children learn, it's learned behavior. It's everything, everything that a child learns is when my son was in speech, it's like when you speak, point to your mouth and, and move your mouth so that he can mimic what you're doing. It's, it's all learned. And, and, and I think a lot of us a lot of us, if we if we process the pain before deciding to make major life decisions, we'd be a lot better exactly. off. Exactly. <laughs> yes. I mean, but that's not reality because uh, right. life's not that that cut and dry. It's not that simple. That's right. That's very true. I'd like to go back to the piece you said about boundaries, um, that sometimes you could feel like you're getting too close or they're getting too close. Can you say a little bit more about that regarding, I think you're talking about the children that you work with. Mm-hmm. 
my work is specifically, I, I'm not required to necessarily meet with the parent. I'm required to contact the parent, but I'm more so required to see the child. I tend to see the child with the parent because I find that that's a boundary that I like to set in place because in, in hearing, in hearing how a child is experiencing things and the things that they've gone through that's brought them to this point where they're, where they feel so such as such a low place and where they feel like, like there's no way out. They feel hopelessness. My automatic reaction as a parent and as somebody who's experienced trauma and who's experienced these emotions as a child, I want to parent them, but I'm not their parent. I can be supportive towards them, but there needs to be a boundary there of, of also honoring their parents and, and saying, how can we all work together? So, so in saying boundaries, it's, it's a boundary that I need to put in place of, of to ensure that I'm working with the entire family and to also make sure that I'm not becoming close to the child where I'm viewing them as my own child. Yeah, that's what makes the work so intense. So that's a bit of the savior complex in mm-hmm. the sense that you want to take them under your wing. You want you know what you're able to provide for them. You want them to have a better life. It's coming from such a good place. But I think it's also coming from a place of it's coming from a place of identification that you know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. You wish that you had somebody who could potentially have done that for you. And it probably would have saved a whole lot of pain that you had to experience. Mm-hmm. And I think it also comes from a place of judgment of saying, I can, I can do it better when really, I don't know this family circumstances, getting an hour with the child and seeing what they've experienced. That doesn't mean I know how to, how to raise them better than their own parent. So it's also realizing that those, those judgments, I think automatically we make judgments without, and subconsciously without even realizing it sometimes. So being aware of that and, and acknowledging it does help you in, in becoming less judgmental and being, being able to remove that, that quick judgment from your work with families. Yeah, that's such an important piece also to be able to reflect on that and know all of the different elements that are going into an intervention or a desire or a wish or, as we're talking about here, a lack of boundaries potentially. But I think that you, again, mean really well. And what I always assess when I'm working with children and their families is the workability of of the parents. Sometimes you do have to go the extra mile when you know that that parents has such severe limitations or that they don't acknowledge that there's a problem here, then we're in trouble, Mm -hmm. right? But as long as there are people who acknowledge and want to work on the issue at hand, then we just have to deal with our own level of patience or impatience that it takes time for people to change, right? And to shift, especially when they've had a lifetime of being related to in a certain way that's causing the behavior that we're seeing. Absolutely. And and in anyone that's experienced trauma, it's hard to trust people. So when you're coming to somebody's house and saying, well, these are the services you need and, and here's where you need help. Initially, the families have every right to feel like, well, I'm, I'm putting my hand up. I'm putting this wall here. You don't know me. You don't know what I've been through. So how are you going to help me when I can't even help mm-hmm. myself or when I have to take my child to the hospital every month and, and I'm going through all of this, how can you help me? And it is that patience that you're talking about and working with them to know that, that it, it takes work to get to the point where you're ready to address the issues that are going on in your home. Mm-hmm. And that just that's just hitting the surface of the work that needs to be done to be able to to improve and have and have more success within your parenting, within your uh, family dynamics and relationships. And so seeing the length of time that it may take to really shift dynamics within a family system and to improve the quality of life of the children within that family system, does it make you want to dig your heels in and and stay for the long haul? Or does it sometimes get so frustrating to see this day in and day out and so many families that are living with this turmoil that it makes you want to kind of look into some other aspect of the field of social work? I think it's a case-by-case basis. I definitely have some families that, that it's difficult. It's, it's a struggle every time. It's like we're wrestling with each other of, of what, do you, what can I help you with? What do you see as, as your biggest needs here? But also um, showing them what, what my perspective is from a professional standpoint. And there's, there's families that, that I can identify or I at least 
I hope I can identify that that there is a willingness underneath underneath all of that that rubble underneath all of those walls that that are built up that they really do want to change which all of us all of us whether we want to admit it or not want to be better but then there's families that it's that it that even the smallest the most minor part of what what they need to do to be able to receive help isn't met and it's it's chasing them but you can't want it more than the family so it's also understanding that and our program is supposed to be the kids are supposed to be in our program i believe 9 to 12 months and a lot of the kids are in there two years over that. And even so, they're, they're still just scratching the surface of, of, of stability. And I think it is, I think we are in need of services that are more long-term for these families and work through, through it with them. And the reality of my job is that it's, it's not long-term. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think our system is set up so that we put Band-Aids on. And of course, you get the Band-Aid a little wet and it falls right off. So it's mm-hmm. the same idea that you mend them for the moment and you think that you've made some progress or that's the amount of progress that you're able to make for the day or the week or the month. And our system says, that's it. We're not covering this treatment anymore or whatever the circumstances may be. And yes, I totally agree that we look have to look for a long-term work because long-term work leads to long-term impact. Mm -hmm. I like this idea that you said that sometimes, you know, we want it more than they do. And that has to make us continue on with caution or reassessment at that stage. As I always say, I always make a parallel between being a professor and a therapist. If you're working harder than the student or if you're working harder than the client, something's wrong here, right? Something needs to shift in order to make this work. And so it does take patience. It does take reassessment. In a way, it adds to the challenge because now I have to reconstruct maybe the path that I'm on, right? So in a way, I think we find these things initially or when we're new to this work, extremely frustrating. And it's not that seasoned professionals don't get frustrated. It's just that we learn to look at it through a new lens, which is, oh, this is exciting. Okay, let me come up with a a different plan or a, a new way of thinking. Because as you said, you know, each case is unique. One size doesn't fit all. And so how we th- how we either think or know from experience that X, Y, and Z worked with this family, it might not necessarily work with every family or the next family that we're, we're on to. And I, and I think it takes honest communication with the families to be able to, as a professional, as a professional say, this isn't working. We're trying here, but but something's not working. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out why we're not on the same page to to have this thriving professional relationship and and to be able, for me to be able to help you to my best ability as your care manager. Yes, and I like what you came back to, which is the idea that people do want better things for themselves. Mm -hmm. They just don't always know how to get it. Or they're comfortable living in the discomfort, which sounds really weird because who wants to live in discomfort? But what we like even above discomfort or above comfort is familiarity. Mm -hmm. And when we're living in discomfort for so long, it's familiar. And in that way, it's comfortable, which is really kind of a odd dynamic. But I think that it makes sense, right? Because change is really scary, certainly change within ourselves. And I I go back to this kind of, I guess it was a joke or an adage that said, how many social workers does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is, well, first the light bulb has to want to change, Mm -hmm. right? So we can only do so much. And I like your approach to the idea of, oh my God, confrontation, because what you're talking about is confronting a family or a client and saying, look, what we're doing isn't really working, right? And so confrontation, as I always say, doesn't have to be mean-spirited or ugly. It's all about the tone. It's all about the approach. But sometimes it's a necessary aspect of intervention. Mm-hmm. And it's going back a little, it's that example of a child that's in an abusive home, right? When they get removed from the home, oftentimes they'd rather stay with their family, no matter how abusive it is, because it's all that they know. And and moving from something that you're so familiar with is uncomfortable and it's scary. And it's not until you take that step and and you step you step into that discomfort and realize that there is there is, there are benefits to that that you can receive. Mm-hmm. You can receive it. And it's like in our field, it's like we can offer the help, but they 
If their hand is shut closed, we can't give it to them in their hand. They need to open their hand to receive the help that we want to provide. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That sounds like a faith analogy. Does that? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> it, it works. So where do you see yourself going from here? Do you see yourself making this your life's work, working with this population? Yeah, I think so. It all started with my internship, working with this population. And I really love the kids that I work with. And it's it's in knowing that a lot of these kids, they have, because of their, their level of trauma and the things that they've experienced, they have behaviors that aren't necessarily likable. They might want to throw a chair at you. They might want to curse you out. They might totally cut you off and not want anything to do with you. I've had kids that have lit their houses on fire. So they they have these behaviors where society looks at them and they're so marginalized because it's like, these are bad kids. They're not bad kids. They're good kids that have gone through a lot and they need someone that is going to stand there and say, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm willing to help you because you can be, you can make a difference in your life. Yeah. And I say, thank God for people like you, because I think you're absolutely right. What we tend to see in the society is, is the external behavior, which makes it very difficult to see beneath that layer and really identify the vulnerability and the fear and the sadness and the pain that's underneath. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that there are people like you who are very committed to working with children because I know as corny as it sounds, the children are our future. They're incredibly important. We tend to undermine their voice. And uh, if you're here to elevate it, then all the power to you and your work. And I wish you much success. Thank you. Thank you so (laughs) much for this discussion. It was really, I found it incredible and I hope the audience does as well. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who I'm meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. And I've been asking myself, what would Dr. Myers do?